continue to keep uh, all the people that I've mentioned to you in prayer. There's a lot of traveling going on. A lot of people are going to be on, on vacation. And I encourage you to take advantage of that. We, uh, we took advantage of that just this past couple of weeks. And uh, we drove, Linda and I drove down to Galveston, Texas. I don't recommend doing that, but we did it. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a long way from home. And, uh, but we had the joy of, again, just walking on the beach and collecting seashells and doing absolutely nothing of value other than resting and relaxing. That was, that was awesome. And so uh, thank you for that opportunity. And uh, now summer's, now we're getting serious. Now summer's here and the projects are on my list and uh, we're going to be working and having great fun and excitement. So uh, again, good things are happening. I encourage you to take vacations. Uh, some of my fondest memories were vacations with my, my dad and mom and places, road trips that we would take. And try to imagine that road trip. Mom, dad, and three crazy boys. Just uh, how we lived through that, oh, God alone knows. But we did it. We did it. There's a story of a, uh, a Jewish family that was visiting in Israel. And uh, the mother-in-law had traveled with them. And unfortunately, uh, she had passed away while they were in Israel. And uh, so it was a very sad moment. And so the, uh, the, uh, they had talked to some people to take care of, like, funeral director and so on. And the, the husband said, I wanna, we're going to ship her back to the United States. I want her buried in America. And the, the funeral said, that's going to cost a lot of money. Are you sure you want to do that? Yes, I don't care what the expense is. I want her, I want her, I want her brought back to the United States. Was there any particular reason, sir, that you want to do that? And he said, yeah, I heard that a long time ago somebody came back to, from the dead, and I don't want to take any chances. <laughs> but um bump Okay, that's the end of that stuff. All right. Romans chapter 8, let's get to that. I've, I've entitled this message this morning, The Resurrected Life. What does that mean, to live as though we have been resurrected from the dead? Because guess what? You were dead in trespasses and sin. And God, when you got saved, he resurrected you. He brought you back to life. We're going to read the, the uh, verse that says, If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive and living in you, guess what? You now have the resurrected life. It changes everything because it's all about perspective. Life is about perspective. It's how we see things. It's how we understand what it means to be a Christian. For some people, I think there's a misunderstanding that to, uh, to become a Christian means that I have to become just, you know, very, very calm, very quiet. Shh. You know, just, you walk into church, If that were true, I could never be a Christian. That's not possible. That, there's no way. You have to lose your sense of humor. I couldn't do that. You'd have to be just, you know, tiny and demure. Couldn't do that. I, there's no way I could be a Christian if, that was, if those were the rules. There's just no way. But praise God, those are not the rules. God has given us this amazing ability to live a resurrected life, but how do I do that? How does that happen? Romans 8, uh, verse number 1, says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. 
So he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Here's the key verse. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Number one, when we come to Christ, when we come to that place where we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, there is a control issue that has to change. You have to empty yourself. My first point is you must empty yourself. Your control mechanism that runs your life has to be taken out and set down on the altar and basically say, God, I am not in control of this thing anymore. You are. It would be similar to me coming to your house where there are men and prying the remote control out of the hand of the man. For me to come in and say, I am now going to be in charge of the remote control. No! 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 The wife's going, yes, yes. But then I would, I would take control of that remote. I would determine what you're going to watch. See, men, let me give you, give you insight into men. Men do not watch television. We see what's on television. We are clicker champions. We just go hunting. We surf. We're surfers. I should start telling people, yeah, I surf. I'm a surfer. Really? No way. Yeah, I'm a surfer. I get out my remote and I go, boop, 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 boop. I surf. The control issue of your life has to be has to be emptied out. And then you become controlled by the Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit will do what? He will begin to encourage and empower and strengthen, and we're going to get to that in a second, because that's point number two, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? But number one, let's look at this first. You see, when I, when I give control from my life, when I give my control of my life over to God then it becomes very much his life that's going to be functioning through me. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, when he came to earth, he made himself nothing. He gave up the issue. He had control. He had powerful authority in heaven. He set that aside so that he could come here and get an idea of what it meant to function as a human being the struggles and the challenges. How many of you understand that there is a war going on in your spirit for control? The enemy wants control, and God wants control. The enemy will take it, God will receive it. God does not come into your life and grab you and shake you and make you do right. You have to yield that to him. That's why it says that Jesus took on the attitude of a servant. 
You don't understand, do you understand what the attitude of a servant basically is? It's standing before the master and simply saying, your will, not mine. Whatever it is you would like to have done, I'll do it. What you are setting yourself up for is to be taken advantage of. How many of you just love that? I mean, don't you love it when people take advantage of you? I can't stand it. But I mean, and I've had to practice it for 40 plus years in the ministry. Because I, you know, I've always worked with senior pastors. And so I come, what do you, what would, what's your goal? What's your vision? What would you have me to do? That's a dangerous statement to make. Because you have no idea what's, what's included in that list. When I was in southern Indiana, one of my jobs was to make sure the toilets were functioning in the school. Why didn't we hire an on-call plumber? Well, he'd been there every day, that's why, because it would have been ridiculous. And I remember one time we had a flood down there. It was awful. We had been working, we, had a, we were building a gymnasium. So we had a porta potty that was outside by the work site. And we had this huge rain and it flooded. And guess what started floating away? Guess who needed to go chase it down? Myself and one of the other associate pastors. I need to add that to my resume. <laughs> Porta potty rescuer. So we're chasing, we're running through the floodwaters and just drenched and trying to catch up to this thing so we could bring it back and set it on higher ground. And <sighs> I love being a servant. Servant. To take on the attitude of a servant. Do you know who controls that? You do. You decide whether you're going to enjoy being a servant or despise every second of it. You decide whether you're going to understand the power of being a servant, to other, whether it's a body of believers or in your office or in, in, even, even as a leader. The most powerful leaders are servant leaders. They understand what it means to commit themselves to the success of someone else. And that's what I'm talking about. Jesus did not come to this earth, take on the form of a human, so that he himself could feel good about himself. He wasn't coming here as, some part, as a part of some kind of rehab program because he was having some issues with depression in heaven. How insane would that be? Jesus came because the Father said, I want to save this world, and I need someone that is perfect that can go down there and do that. But you will have to take on the form of a servant. You will have to, to understand, pray, believe, and speak it, that you will say, not my will, but thine be done, O God. To come to that place is so powerful and so re releasing when you empty yourself, because now, you then make room for the Holy Spirit to move in and you become empowered by the Spirit. Look at verse number 9. We touched on it already. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit 
who lives in you. When you turn the light on in a room, where does the darkness go? Have you, gone, have you ever gone into a room and you turn on the light and only half of the room got light? Well, Diane, we need to check your electricity if that's the case. All right. But no, when light enters into a situation, darkness, it's not a, it's not a discussion. There's not, there's not a, you know, there's not some kind of a conversation that goes on where the darkness says, well, I'm not ready to leave yet. No, the light comes on and the darkness is gone. The same is true when you get saved. The, when, when you bow your knee before God and you say, Father, fill me with your spirit, the darkness cannot remain. The war is now between the darkness wanting to come back in. The enemy comes along and he gives you all this baloney, and he's really good at that. But we need to understand that we've been, when we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have the right and the authority to declare certain things as done. Because God has already told us that. Jesus said, you've been endued with power from on high. To do what? To become my witnesses. To become communicators of the authority and the word and the power of God. If we don't exercise that, we now become just subject to whatever God wants to do with us. To whatever the enemy, rather, wants to do with us. How many of you have sensed the enemy at times coming in and trying to convince you that you're a loser, that you're a failure, that you're, you know, you're not going to make this, you're not going to make it? And that's where I give you now permission to simply say, shut up, sit down, and if I need you, I'll call you. Just be gone. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says it right here, that same spirit is alive and living in me. And I have, I've discovered something that, that's true. I can decide who's going to rule in my, be, in my life. I can make those decisions. How many, have you ever, I've done this, have you ever decided, you know what, I think I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cooperate with the enemy. I'm going to listen to him and I'm going to get critical and angry and I'm going to have a pity party. And then he's standing over there, and yes, it's working, it's working. I don't know if he talks like that. I hope not, but I don't know. But then I, have, I can make the decision, wait a minute, this is, this is idiotic, what am I doing? Get thee behind me, Satan, shut up. I'm a child of God. I have the Spirit of God living inside of me. I have a future, I have a destiny. I love what Carmen says, when the enemy tells you about your brings up your past, just remind him of his future. That's an awesome statement. Understand that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to empower us to the point where we begin to realize that the Holy Spirit leads us into all what? Truth. Truth. Not feelings, not opinions, not weird ideas. Truth. And so if I respond to that truth, the Holy Spirit will always show you the right way 
Because God's reputation is at stake, not yours. When we understand that, life, can be get, life gets to become exciting. Then it's not so much of a struggle. Well, bad, could, can unfortunate things or bad things happen to Christians? Sure, all the time. I don't understand some of the, some of the insanity that's going on in the world today. But I don't, it's not my job to understand it. My function is to serve God. As Paul says in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. No, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So when I, when I hear terrible things happening, I pray, I rejoice that God is in charge, I pray for those that have suffered, and I thank God that he is still in charge, period. That's what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be able to communicate. And that's the final point. Number three. Number one, emptied of self. Number two, empowered by the Spirit. But number three, impassioned for others. We have a passion. We, are, we become impassioned for, the, for the, the well-being of other people. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Here Paul continues this letter. Again, probably one of the... the this, Romans is the crown jewel of Christianity. It's one of the most amazing letters. In verse number 8 he says, But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, but it is, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now what does this mean? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, some would say, well, you know, that, that passage is for preachers and missionaries. Paul, Eileen, welcome home, or whatever home this is, welcome. God bless you. Keep Eileen in prayer. She's having her knee replaced, I think. And uh, our prayers are with you, Eileen. God bless you. This passage of Scripture is not just for preachers, missionaries, pastors, etc. I want you to look at your feet. Whoa, those are beautiful feet. Dude, those are awesome feet. You know why? Because you have good news. You are a carrier of good news. Now the question is, are you okay to share that good news? You know, you know everybody, and I've been in church forever since I was a little kid, and it seems like a lot of, a lot of pastors like to guilt us into witnessing. I'm, I'm ending that today, okay? 
No more. Either. Don't go out and tell people about Jesus. Okay? I'd probably get fired for that one, but at least not till August, so I'm good. All right. Um, <laughs> Stop trying to get people or keep people out of hell. That's not our job. Let me share with you what I do want you to do. I want you to simply answer three questions regarding your personal story. Okay? People love stories. They love to hear stories. Nobody wants to argue. Nobody wants to argue politics. They don't want to argue religion. So why bother? Let's just tell stories. Let them tell you their story. What's their story? They, maybe they've got an inside track on a whole other belief system that's even better than Christianity. I want to know what that is. I don't think that exists, but who knows? But as we share our stories, question number one, why are you saved? Why did you get saved? I was afraid of going to hell. Okay, that's a valid reason. I was confronted with the truth. I'd searched all kinds of religions of the world and, and found that Jesus seemed to be the answer. Why, think about it. Why did you get saved? I was a little boy. I used to go, I, you know, I'd be in Sunday school and I'd hear the gospel message and I'd sit through VBS and I'd hear the altar calls and all that. And it's just not, not it just, I wasn't convinced for some reason. I just thought, you know, yeah, nah, I'm not, nah, I don't want to, I'm not ready to do that. But then at the age of, uh, must have been 10, I was at a kid's camp. And I heard the, heard the gospel message presented, and the, it, was a, it was a woman that was doing the, uh, doing the uh, preaching. And uh, when she gave the altar call, something inside of me clicked. And I knew that it was then that I had to get down to that, that front row of chairs, get on my knees, and ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart. To simply say, Heavenly Father, I've ignored you long enough. Forgive me, Father, for ignoring you. Forgive me, Father, for being an unbeliever. Today I want to become a believer. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I now accept Christ, his death on the cross, his payment for my sin. I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. Father, it's cool having you as a dad. In Jesus' name, amen. As a 10-year-old, I prayed that. Now, when I got up, I was saved. I was a believer. But I was still working on the perfection issue. I was a 10-year-old boy. I had, I had stuff to do. I had places to go, people to see, things, things to accomplish. But now, every one of those decisions was now under the shadow of the Almighty. Praise the Lord. I never took up any really too weird habits. God protected me from a lot of things, a lot of foolishness. But it was because at the age of 10, I had emptied myself. I, I laid down the controller, I laid down the remote control of my life, and I said, God, I'm going to give it to you. You take it. And so it began. At the age of 14, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. That experience was, was amazing. So I gave even more control to God at that time. I allowed him to use my tongue 
to pray, to pray in the Spirit. It was phenomenal. It was an amazing experience. And God ministered to me at that time. I believe at that time he probably called me into the ministry, but it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that I accepted that call. But you see, I had to answer that, why, am I, why did I get saved? Just tell, tell people, why did, why did you get saved? What's your story? The second question is, how did you get saved? How did you get saved? How many of you got saved in a church setting? How many of you got saved with a friend? A friend led you to Christ. How many of you are maybe at a revival meeting or a big, big, act, a big crusade or something? How many of you are actually saved in here? I'm, I'm not getting any hands, so, okay, good. I was getting nervous. How many of you were maybe in a bedroom somewhere, you know, just by yourself, and you accepted Christ? Okay? Awesome. You just, you know, that's how you got saved. I was at a kid's camp. I just told you how I got saved. I told you why I got saved, and I told you how I got saved. The third question is probably the most powerful. Why are you still saved? Why are you still saved? You, see, you know, you sit down over coffee or lunch with someone and just, just answer these three questions. Let me just tell you a little, little story about myself. You know what? When I was, you know, back when I was a 10-year-old and I was deep into drugs and evil... Th no, that's not true. <laughs> I wasn't into anything other than fighting with my brothers. But, uh, again, why did, why did I get saved? I came, I, I came, you know, I was confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, who he was, who he said he was, what he did... And then here's how I, here I accepted. This is what I did to accept that truth. Here's what I prayed. Here, here's how I did it. And then the, that third question is, why am I still saved? Why are you still saved? What do you come, why do you come to church? How many of you could find something else to do on Sunday morning? There are tea times out there by the hundreds that I'm missing right now. <laughs> why did I mention that? <laughs> I'm kidding. But you see, if you, if you simply share these three questions in the process of a story, you're not threatening anyone. You're not condemning them. You're not telling them how crazy they are for not being a Christian. You're just sharing your story. Let them share their story. Because that story will give you insight into how you can best minister to that individual. And then at the end of your story, hey, is there anything you'd like me to pray about? That is the most, what do I want to say? That is the least threatening way that we could minister to other people. They will literally be drawn to you because they like you because you're a storyteller. You're just telling stories. You're not giving them theological arguments to beat them over the head. You're sharing the truth that, that, hit, that hit your life. A long time ago I heard a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. I think there's a little bit of truth to that. What's your experience? What did, you know, share your story. Tell your story.
and then, you know, see what happens. Leave the results totally up to the Holy Spirit. You just planted in their life a powerful seed. I know that in some cases when, there's, when someone has cancer, there are times when they will plant a radioactive seed of material into the center of that tumor, and before long that radioactivity begins to influence that tumor, shrink it, kill it, transform it. I'm just believing God, you're going to become, all become radioactive seeds. You're going to touch people's lives. Tell your story, impact them in a powerful, powerful way. Well, I can't leave without telling a story, so. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I love stories. John Harper. Story is entitled, The True Hero of the Titanic. I'm sure none of you have ever heard this. John Harper was born to a pair of solid Christian parents on May 29th, 1872. On the last Sunday of March of 1886, he was 13 years old that he received Jesus Christ as the Lord of his life. He went on, to keep the story a little bit shorter, he went on to, uh, to become a pastor. He was married for a very short period of time. His wife, uh, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, but they were able to, uh, to have a child, a little girl named Anna. And here's where the story picks up. It was the night of April 14, 1912. The RMS Titanic sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters, heading unknowingly into the pages of history. On board this luxurious ocean liner, there were many rich and famous people at the time of the ship's launch. It was the world's largest man-made movable object. At 11.40 p.m. on that fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side, showering the decks with ice and ripping open six watertight compartments the sea poured in. On board the ship that night was John Harper and his much-beloved six-year-old daughter, Nana. According to documented reports, as soon as it was apparent the ship was going to sink, John Harper immediately took his daughter to a lifeboat. It is reasonable to assume this widowed preacher could have easily gotten on board this boat to safety. However, it never seemed to have crossed his mind. He bent down, kissed his precious little girl, looking into her eyes. He told her that she would see him again someday. The flares going off in the dark sky above reflected the tears on his face as he turned and headed towards the crowd of desperate humanity on the sinking ocean liner. As the rear of the huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Harper was seen making his way up the deck yelling, women and children and unsaved into the lifeboats. It was only minutes later that the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion. Actually, the gargantuan ship was literally breaking in half. At this point, many people jumped off the decks into the icy dark waters below. John Harper was one of these people. That night, 1,528 people went into the frigid waters. John Harper was seen swimming frantically to people in the water, leading them to Jesus before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr. Harper swam up to one young man who had climbed up in a piece of debris. Reverend Harper asked him between breaths, are you saved? The young man replied, no, that he was not. Harper then tried to lead him to Christ, only to have the young man who was near shock reply, no, no thanks. John Harper then took off his life jacket, threw it to the man, and said, here, you're going to need this more than I do. Swam away to the other people. A few minutes later, Harper swam back to the young man, succeeded in leading him to Christ that time. Of the 1,528 people that went into the water that night, six were rescued by, the, by lifeboats. One of them was this young man on the debris. Four years later at a survivor's meeting, 
The young man stood up and in tears recounted how John Harper had led him to Christ. John Harper had tried to swim back to help other people, yet because of the intense cold had grown too weak to swim. His last words before going under in the frigid waters were, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. John Harper understood the resurrected life. He had emptied himself. He'd handed the controller of his life to Christ. He was completely empowered by the Holy Spirit. And impassioned for people beyond imagination. John Harper. One of our examples. There are other examples throughout Scripture. Peter, Christ, John, the disciples, other followers of Christ, and you. We are all living the resurrected life. The song goes like this. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day I'll cross that river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. Stand with me. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives.